Welcome back to the Anarchist Monastery, coming to you from the amazing city, the, the capital of the north of England, York. I'm Daniel Roy Connolly. And I'm Hugh Bernays. Good to see you again, Hugh. Good to see your happy, smiling face. It's been a busy week for the letters. I'm, 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 I'm a, a little. Oh, I say. I'm a little amazed and a little humbled. Uh, we've had we've had letters in from from all over the world, um, and I uh, I want to read a couple out um, because uh, they they might they might lead to something to chat about. So look, here's this is this is a letter from Maria um, in the in Manila in the, over there in the Philippines um, in uh, in Southeast Asia. Uh, um, dear Hugh and Daniel, I loved the podcast. Uh, as a consequence, I've looked you both up on the internet. And while Daniel appears to be everywhere, Hugh only has a couple of pictures off his page on a film extras website. Have you had any roles, Hugh? What would your dream extra role be? Thank you, Maria, in the Philippines. What a cracking question. Yes, I have. Um, What happened was uh, the television series on Queen Victoria was going to be filmed partly in York because of its, you know, ancient locations, etc., And uh, it turned out that they were using the Guildhall as as the Houses of Parliament or the Houses of Commons, the House of Commons, where Melbourne was speaking. And I found myself, uh, because they were doing that then, um, in my first extra role, which was as one of the members of Parliament in... uh, um, in the House of Commons, in the Guild Hall down the uh, the road at, in York. Right. What did you? How did you? How did that? Um, what were you dressed up as, Hugh? For well, that particular. Uh, I, I had fa- I had fairly old fashioned Victorian um, sort of uh, long stockings, you know, sort of white stockings that came up just below the knee. The thoughts and then of you breeches. in stockings that come up to just below the yeah, knee. Yeah, yeah, and then black breeches—a very, very common sort of garb, I think, uh, in the early Victorian period, before trousers really kicked in. I mean, but trousers did kick in in the Victorian period, and. Um, you, people like Disraeli and uh, and Gladstone, they wouldn't have been dressed in this rather um, early nineteenth century Jane Austen type sort of. Uh, so we're looking at the end. Of, we're looking at the end of stockings, basically, and the yeah, kicking in. Yeah, that was my first. Yeah, trousers. my first extra part at the end of stockings. Right. What year was this? Uh, I think it was probably two thousand and fifteen, uh, because uh, I had been working. Uh, at the Nestle factory, making the chocolate that goes on Kit Kats. And I retired in 2015. Amazing. And it just so happened, without me planning it or thinking about it, this film extra role, a way of uh, of going forward, developed of its own accord. That's amazing. You know, yeah, yeah, just by chance. Can I just ask um, a, a slight uh, circumlocution here? Can I just ask, is it the case that two-finger Kit Kats have precisely half the chocolate of four-finger Kit Kats? Or are we missing something here? You're the expert. I loved I loved the use of the word expert. Yes. I love the use of the word precisely. Yeah. When it comes to um, numbers of units uh, in relation to one another on the Kit Kat, right. I think that because I bow before precision and everything, I yes. daren't chance a decimal point on that. So you're saying then that it is the case? that there is precisely half the amount of chocolate on a two-finger Kit Kat than there is on a four-finger Kit Kat. And do you have a preference? Of ki- are you a two-finger man no, or a no, four-finger man? No, no, you must talk man? about 
geography. I think that you know, when you're measuring coastlines and things, and the smaller something is, you can have something that's really tiny and have an enormous great coastline, provided that goes in and out, has enough profile on it. Right. And I imagine that there's an economy of profile. I mean, this is only a guess. On the four-finger Kit Kat, so it would have Could you explain less than less than twice probably uh-huh. you'd be able to feel i would think so but the thing about the chocolate on kit kats is that although it hasn't got something extra no flavoring extra flavoring added to it it does taste different to all chocolate that goes on chocolate bars okay it's very distinctive and we do something to it it's something in the process the way we do something to it and i've had to uh, obviously sign the non-disclosure agreements on it but so there's nothing extra special in it right. to make it taste that extra special way it does. Yes. It's slightly um, burnt almond flavour that's yeah. there and it's got nothing to do with anything added to it at all. It's the way you make it. You see, this is a fantastic... And it's a secret. This is a fantastic measure of indeed who we are and what we're doing here, Hugh, because mm-hmm. we started talking about your dream extra role, your experience as an extra, and we've ended up then discussing the merits of two or four-fingered Kit Kats. Which is so useful, people will also be taking notes about that. I think so. They? There's a market. Well, next time they eat a Kit Kat, if they ever do again, you know. Mm. So um, let's just go back to the, the, think the, about to the ex, the film extra role that you had. That was that you've had any other roles as a film extra, Hugh? Yeah, the most sensational one I had was when I was starting out as an extra, as a, a support artiste, as they call us, and ended up as the performance double of Anthony Daniels on the spin-off Star Wars for uh, called Solo that they were doing down in Pinewood. You were in Solo. As a, as a, did you say a stunt double? No, no it was not I can't a imagine. Stunt I can't double. imagine. I, yeah, I'd worked my whole life in the factory, and then decided I would become a stunt <laughs> film stunt artist. No, I'm adventurous, but no, I was just a performance double because Anthony Daniels uh, did cameo parts in all the films that Star Wars have ever made since Star oh, Wars. Where, yeah, he was CP3PO. He's CP3, a my, the new one, C3P3PO. Yeah. Uh, well, whoever he was okay. in the original Star Wars, the, it gold, was, the little gold robot. That's right. He was. Yeah, sure. Had a had a tin can as a friend. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. That was R two D two D two D two. So fans of Star Wars want to see him in other films, hidden away, a bit like Where's Wally or something. So he's not actually dressed in his CP three PO uniform. You know, his costume. He He's dressed in all sorts of things. He might be a bystander. He might be selling something in a, a, from a stall in a, uh, you know, in a market on another planet or whatever. Okay. But because it was only a cameo, he was only required for a very short time. Right. So he... he so just... they needed, they needed to have somebody who looked like him, who was dressed up to look like him, to stand in for it I when see. they were rehearsing those scenes. And that was me. Did you actually have to move around, walk? Uh, yeah, I had, of course I did. No, I had to run around. I had, I had lines. I had, you had lines? I had lines. I even had, I had a, a, a wagon and a place to suddenly, instead of ch- getting changed in a tent, like we did with all, the, all together as, as extras, yes. I had a wagon, yeah. So I had, you had your own yeah. wagon? Well, not the whole wagon. I had, what I had was um, a dressing room in a wagon. Was it the front end of the wagon or the with back end? With my name on the front saying... Um, performance double you absolute legend and i was driven around suddenly and this never happens to actors in one of those golf carts yeah. from the wagon mm. to to um the actual uh, scene w- that they were doing at that time you know they treated you as they would treat on a set. star 
they except stars probably don't share their wagons but they really they really treated yes they have to oh they do yeah yeah this whole thing they have so well trained these people and right. if the person is of a certain status and doing a certain thing in the film it doesn't matter who they are how they got there they are all treated the same way and they are looked at they have somebody to look after them and somebody to drive them about and go and ask them if they want coffee and go and bring that on the set and things like Amazing. that. You eat in a different place. The whole thing was absolutely so disorienting. It carried, I get flashbacks from it, you know, for months afterwards. I would think, why am I feeling so strange? You know, and it was because I'd been in this strange upside down world where yeah. everybody was treating me like I was some extraordinarily important creature or something. Yeah. It was very, very rare and had to be looked after. That's incredible. And that's a feeling that came back to me. I thought, where's that coming from? Oh, it was that. It was being that performance extra. So I suddenly realised that, you know, these things washing over me, that I was right. suffering from performance, what is it? Um, performance deficit syndrome. No, no, no. You're not getting uh, enough performance <laughs> in your life. I'll think of it in a minute. Anyway, next question. No, the so what was your dream? What would your dream extra role be? Right. So we know what you've done. Oh, Where yeah, would you yeah, take yeah. that, Hubenaise? Um I think my dream role would be slung across a gun carriage as a dead body um, at Waterloo or the um, or the uh, the Charge of the Light Brigade, something like that, with blood all over me and uh, and um, a lovely view of the sky and nothing to do all afternoon that that would be the battle of waterloo rather than waterloo station because i don't recall seeing many people slung over gun i've seen lots of dead bodies slung over empty train carriages because they're not going anywhere oh i'm prepared to do surreal right, <laughs> but no 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 i think that that would be my my dream one fantastic okay slung a dead body across a gun carriage red tunic like weapon a rifle yeah 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 right. all those things that's what we're talking about and a quick shot of you from above or the side right bit of blood coming out your mouth hugh what would yeah, you say? Yeah, a little bit. So you, you're, how have you died in, in this battle? I'm just trying to get an idea of how you, what we would see, how you'd be slung exactly. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I'd have a bullet through me. But I thought, I've thought of the sin, I thought of the syndrome that I was suffering from, from all the, uh, all the looking Good. after me and everything there. And it was um, post-traumatic success disorder. Oh, okay, very nice. Very nice. Yeah, yeah. When success dies, you mean when it dries up? How you, you find if you've had a success, you will find you're suffering. You're suffering from post-traumatic success disorder. That's brilliant. Yeah, okay. and that's what I've had. Yes, I can and still, just, yeah, still recovering slightly from it. It's written all over you. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah like how it messed with my memory when I was trying to remember what the name of the disorder was. It occasionally comes to the surface. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, that that's that. Thank you, Maria. Um, in in the Philippines, there. Um, I just my my dream role probably at the party in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, dressed up with all those people having a great time, doing the time warp in the background. I think I'd really like that. It, uh, that was your favorite, but you've actually been an extra on films, haven't you? I was an extra in um, Elizabeth: The Golden Age. I yeah, this is the strange I, thing about it. We meet up, we both been exactly. doing this as though everybody in the world was doing it. And I had two days at Ely Cathedral. Yeah, um, about twenty years ago, maybe a bit less. I played, I had to get there at like 5.30 in the morning. I spent th course, three hours course, in yeah, makeup. Yeah. They paid me 20 pounds to, to shave off my beard and put another one there in its place. Um, I dressed up uh, in full finery. I have to say, beautiful purple robes and silks and uh, as an Austrian courtier. And uh, I had to stand with my fellow courtiers because the Archduke of uh, the Habsburg Empire wanted to marry Elizabeth, so we accompanied him on the, um, on the journey. I did have a small walking scene with Jeffrey Rush. 
um, I, it may have arisen from me sharing a cigarette with him outside uh, outside the uh, the vestry of Ely Cathedral. And uh, I was asked by the director to just film a, a short four-second um, walking along with Jeffrey, who was playing, I think, Sir Francis Walsingham, the spy master. And we were asked to do three or four seconds of conversation uh, walking along uh, the apse or something like that, um, which turned into seven seconds of conversation because Jeffrey, being the pro, wanted about a second and a half uh, preamble and, and a second and a half at the end to lead us out. Um, I, was, I, I thought I was stunning, to be honest with you. I thought I, I walked in exactly the right way, the way an Austrian courtier would in, in the late 16th century. Yeah, but the question is, did it appear in the film or did it end up on the cutting room floor? Do you know what they, This is the bane of extras' right, lives. Right. Do you know what they did? They, the, the film company put on, a, put on a show for all the extras uh, at, uh, the, I think, the Everyman Cinema in Cambridge. And the whole place was rammed with like 300 people who'd been in the film. And then they played the movie. And all through the movie, every 10 seconds, someone's going, look, that's me, that's me up there, look. Right? And then, oh, look, you see that bloke carrying out the bucket of shit from the yeah, palace? Yeah, that's yeah, me, yeah, that yeah, is, yeah. right? Yeah. And you see that fellow on the back of a wagon uh, with his cock and hen? That's me, that is. Right? So it, it was, it was, uh, it, was uh, they, they, it, it didn't make the final cut, I'm afraid, Hugh. I ended up on the floor with Jeffrey. Yeah, well, that's about 90% or probably more, 90% of all the all time right. footage taken when you're an extra yeah. in a film. Yeah. You imagine while you're at it that yeah. you're going to be there, you know, and you're getting your face in the place. Yeah. But, you know, in the end, I only got my feet in the solo thing for Star's, Star Wars. Mm. I mean, they were good feet. It was a good yeah. shot of them. Excellent feet. I suppose, yeah. I suppose the fact that I, I have to take it, you know, um, fairly with some equanimity, the idea that I did end up on the on the cutting room floor, but at least that means I don't suffer from post, post-traumatic stress. Success disorder. Success disorder, right? <laughs> that, 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 that has currently passed Yeah, it's definitely, a, it needs naming um, as a disorder. I mean, you, you want to keep abreast of all the uh, new disorders that are coming out in case you can uh, claim one, you know, because the more you can claim, the more likely you are to get a parking permit or, you know, That's very good. free bus or something. I like that. So, um... The final letter I'm going to read out uh, is from Ralph in, uh, in New York City, uh, there, over, over there in the United States. Um, Dear Hugh and Daniel, I listened to your podcast and think you should talk less and say more. That's Ralph in New York. They're quite so blunt, the New Yorkers, aren't they? Yeah, it's a clever thing to say, but, you know, we could, we could um, dedicate moments of silence to him where we aren't saying anything at all. These are... What's his name again? Ralph. Ralph in Ralph, New York City. Call them a Ralph moment. You okay. Know, is where we are um, using not saying things to uh, to say more. Should we Should we practice that? Should we have a quick practice of a Ralph moment? A quick bit of silence. We'll do five seconds, shall we? Just to see how that. You know, this is for Ralph. Ralph, this is for you over there in in New York. The, the, I'm game. I'm game. See, ever, we, can we be quiet for five seconds? I think I think maybe it's because you're. Uh, I think it's maybe because I'm uh, going to die. Uh, in Ralph, five seconds. I think it's because Ralph lives in New York City that he's he wants. And that, it's very that noisy. Set, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, it's he very wants, noisy, and he wants to get onto a podcast where people don't talk very much. And there's right. nice silence. Right. And every now and again, they say something marvelous. Should we give the listeners an idea of what it what it sounds like to be on a podcast that where not much is said? Should we just have a little? I think you have to say something marvelous before the silence, so that people have that 
Ralph moment to think about it because he did mention he had to say a lot. And the silence. Yeah. And I have thought of a little, one of my favourite phrases, you know, that I curate as as an insight designer. Right. Um, We'll come back to that, I hope. Yeah, I'm quite prepared to talk about it. It's a great profession and I'll be retiring soon. So, you know, other people must pile in now. There's a lot of work to be done. Right. You know. But, yes, so this is the particular, so I'll do the insight Right. And then we will have five seconds silence okay. to think about it. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. so do you have an insight now for us? Yeah, yeah, I've got one. Let's hear your, we need to, what is insight design, by the way, Hugh Bernays? What is, what is insight design? How would you define that exactly? Well, lots of people have insights all the time, right? If you're a person... That's a very, measure of humanity. You, you do a lot of outsight. Obviously, that's what your eyes are for. Right. But your mind's eye... What it's looking at yep. is generally insights. It's insight. That's yeah. what mind's eyes are for. Yes, indeed. Huh? What size are your mind's eyes? I don't know. Insightfulness and outsightfulness. Mm. So once you've had the design, you uh, every now and again feel the need to express it. Okay. To actually put it. You into look very words. excited then when you say that. Your eyebrows I shot know, up because it's the thing. Up a little bit. I know it's the thing. It's the expression is where you actually get your hands in the aesthetic material. Right. You know, like if you were um, a potter, you would get your your hands in the clay and get right. the clay to express itself. Right. When you're actually finding words for an insight, right. your clay is words, right. language. That's your aesthetic material. And so, yeah, I do get excited. I love how you dip your hands, hands into this into, kind of yeah, pot or yeah, bucket. Yeah. And I imagined yeah. immediately like that pot or bucket being filled with blood and Macbeth was dipping his hands in because it's a Saturday night and he's going out. And you have these fantasies often, do you? Do I have Macbeth fantasies? Well, go ahead. Do you I have tell mo- me about it. Do I have moments of ambition leading to leading to slaughter? That's what you think of as a Macbeth fantasy. Yeah. That, Not that's... dipping your blood into that. It's Lady Macbeth. Yeah. Well, I mean, dipping the blood would be the consequence of the fantasy, but the fantasy itself, right, yeah. would be... Anyway, that, that, that's fantastic. So just tell us your, your insight design. Yes, here it goes. And then we'll have five seconds for, which for, you will count i will me, count you down for while ralph, we for think ralph. about it to see this is a ralph moment for yeah. ralph. so ralph this is for you here comes here comes the insight language is predictive text so that was insight and consequence of insight coming to you from hubernaise yeah so how would you define insight? Well, I think uh, I've said it's what comes to uh, what comes to the attention of the mind's eye. Right. Um, but uh, we need insight, but we do need to, to if we've got an insight that's worthwhile um, using, um, then uh, we need to put it in a form where it can travel easily and be e- immediately accessible to others and always understandable and be used. I like that very much. What about the design aspect then? What is that exactly? What, what's going on? There? Why, why the word design? Mm, well, I think uh, brevity being the soul of wit, which mm. is presumably Shakespeare. Presumably it is. Yeah. Do you know what play that comes um, from? I can, Hamlet, probably. No, mm, yes, it's Polonius yeah, and Hamlet. Yeah, brevity yeah, being well the soul of wit. But if um, brevity is the soul of wit, then... Um, it's to be at all useful, it's got to be able to look after itself out there amongst all the other words and phrases yep. that are there. So it's got to have a ring to it. Okay. It's, it's hopefully, a lot of hopefully it can be funny as well. And right. somehow, you know, I mean, if it's uh, wit is as being used in um, Brevity as the Soul of Wit, yes. uh, is not 
it does not necessarily refer to comedy at all. Um, it's just uh, being precise, acute. Exactly. You know, an yes. on the ball Crun- wit. Crunching yeah, down yeah, the yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if ever you have an insight, it'll be useless to you. And all our insights are pretty useless to us until we can get them down into a form where they are um, communicable. And this is the design aspect of the... This uh, is the design, yeah. So you've got, to make it, you've got to make it as small and as short and as glittering as possible. Yeah. Attractive. Something funny about it, you know? And um, language's predictive text is uh, a challenge to language which people feel is expressing them. They're using language to express themselves. But, of course, if the language is predictive text, then they're actually expressing the categories of the language. And they cannot break out of its categories to actually express themselves. So in trying to use language to express yourself, you're going to be continuously frustrated, drawing on these blocks of meaning and putting them together, okay. which when it comes down to actually what a self is, are much, much too clumsy to, uh, to capture it. I love that. I hope, I hope that Ralph in New York City won't be disappointed by us with the amount of words we use together to talk about insight design. I think the takeaway for Ralph is the five seconds of silence at the end, that vortex. Well, that was for, that. he knew he did that. That was him speaking That's to the world. Yes. That was the silence. That was Ralph speaking. That's it. Ralph, you're on the show. He, we were quoting him. Yeah. We were quoting him. And I think I'd, I'd love Ralph to actually write back and, and disagree violently with everything that's been said. I right. think that would be fine, you know. Well... It's as he's a, if he's a New Yorker. There's every chance that he'll disagree violently. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're very fond of him. We've named a silence after we have, him, we have. and that should go out to other listeners too to know that you know if they can be provocative enough, they might get mm. something named after them as well. It's this moment of silence goes out to Ralph. Our, our customary weekly moment of silence goes out yeah. to Ralph in New York City. Thank you, Ralph. It's almost as if he's here with us. Welcome back to the Anarchists monastery in york still a little bit on the subject of fame i'd quite like to uh, talk about one thing that uh, happens all the time in this uh, uh, industry and uh, in all life actually which is the six degrees of separation yes that well-known uh, yeah, that well-known trope yeah. Indeed. and you would be amazed at, um, at the sort of uh, connections that you can find to people that you read about in the newspaper and everything extraordinary or, um every day and uh, I know, I can remember you actually telling me a story about your great-grandfather, right? the, uh, the fishmonger. My grandfather, the fishmonger. Yes, yes. Yeah, my, um, my maternal grandfather. Now, in the 1950s, I'm, I'm going to uh, I'm going to say, he, was, he worked at Billingsgate Fish Market in London, which um, for the listeners was the, I think it was the biggest fish market in the world at the time. Uh, that's, where, that's where the country got its fish from basically and it was on on the thames uh, uh very close to the to the center of london a few miles out from the center of london my grandfather uh had a stall had a fish stall um he'd get up at uh, he'd get up at like three o'clock every morning take the train to london open his stall up and then at like 10 11 o'clock they'd all close and he, they'd all go down the pub and he'd get he'd get home smelling of beer and fish um at, at about about three thirty in the afternoon one of his customers who came weekly was one of the Cray twins, right? Oh, the notorious East London 
gangsters from the 50s and 60s. Now, I'm not sure which one it was, Reggie or Ronnie. I'd like to say it was the one who was a bit more crazy, but let's be honest. I mean, you know, they're both pretty mad, aren't they? What every week on a Friday, Ronnie or Reggie would pull up in a, in a Humber Super Snipe, which was a fantastic, big old, comfortable car modeled, I'm sure, on, 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 on American cars from the 40s. A Humber Super Snipe. Ronnie or Reggie, the driver would, uh, would come round uh, at the entrance to Billingsgate Fish Market and open the door for Ronnie or Reggie uh, to get out. And, and they would walk into the, into the fish market. Um, the, the, there would be a, a parting of the waves because everyone always wanted to come and watch Ronnie or Reggie uh, collect their fish. There was a parting of the waves, like some, like some biblical moment. And Ronnie or Reggie walked right the way up to my grandfather's fish stall and where he had prepared for them their cod for Friday night. Now, it's also the case that Ronnie or Reggie paid the exact amount always. There, were no, they, there was this sort of gangster's honor thing going on where they always paid the true and fair price of their Friday night cod. My grandfather would hand the cod over to Ronnie or Reggie, and Ronnie or Reggie would then give my grandfather the correct money and then would turn... 180 degrees and sweep out of Billingsgate Fish Market in the manner in which they swept in. But this time, holding a bag of fish, the driver would be waiting for them. He'd open the door of the Humber Super Snipe. Ronnie or Reggie would get in the back, door closed, off they'd go. So it was Ronnie or Reggie did their own shopping. They did. I, I, I'm not sure if they did any other shopping. Well, not, they looked after their mum, didn't they? They did. That's they, right. So they maybe um, they were buying the fish for her, right? You know, and she would be cooking it for them that evening because Friday is a family evening. Mother Cray, something like that. But I mean, in six degrees of separation, now um, you knew your great grandfather, uh, grandfather. You knew your grandfather. I knew my yes, yes. I knew my Great. grandfather, and your grandfather knew his father. Yeah, and his so and that man. Yeah, was the craze fishmonger because he, he, he didn't go to any other fish. Market, no, they didn't. Store. He was he was the one. He was the one. It was the it was the one. And and uh, he my he used to he, he had false teeth. Um, my uh, my grandfather. Oh yeah, like right. Elizabeth the first. I think she had wooden teeth, didn't she? Mm. Uh, my grandfather and George had, Washington and my yes, indeed. And my grandfather had false teeth, like just like George Washington. Same toothery, I think, they were made at. And he would stand behind my grandmother's back when she was talking to us, right? My my sister and brother. And he would he would he would push his false teeth out and make them protrude right over her. And we we screamed with laughter every time. And of course, as the good stooge she was, she pretended that she didn't have an, an idea what was going on. And then she would she would turn around and just in time, those false teeth would be sucked back into my grandfather's mouth and he would have this beautifully sweet, innocent look on his face. And we, uh, we were in tears. Yeah, scenes from a childhood, eh? Scenes, How wonderful. Scenes from a childhood. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, in this childhood that you're talking about, where you have this uh, uh, um, grandfather, it was with the comic yeah. effect. Was this is the grandfather with the wooden teeth? Uh, he didn't have wooden teeth. No, he that was Queen Elizabeth the first. I uh, think they, I think the teeth had evolved by, okay, by the time. Okay, I'll that cancel. He had I'll cancel the wooden teeth right. from the story just and put ordinary teeth. Just stick a plank in his yeah, mouth and yeah, get him yeah. to laugh. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, the family generally was it? Uh, 
Was it a very um, sort of theatrical, um, fun, uh, jokey family? Did you all... Is there banter about, or was this fairly rare? Yeah, I'd, banter was fairly rare, I would say. My father was very ill from uh, when I was aged 11. And so that my, 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 effectively, my mobile father disappeared from my life um, when I was 11 years of age. He was, he was um, his, basically, his spinal cord collapsed overnight. They're still, they never quite knew what caused it, a genetic time bomb something of which I'm always acutely aware. Um, he was in hospital for, he was in intensive care. He was effectively given the last rites or the equivalent thereof. And he was bedridden. He was pretty much bedridden thereafter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he could mm-hmm. get out like once a week, a friend of his would come to take him to the shops. So this happened when you were 11, yeah. 11 and yeah. you were just starting secondary school at that time? Exactly, right? What a time. I was just starting secondary school, so uh, I would have been, mm, yeah, basically a year in coming up to that. Too, yeah, what too. sort of school was this? Was this a comprehensive? Grammar school. A grammar school? South End yeah. High School for boys Great. In, yeah. in Essex. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all boys. There was one girl in the sixth form uh, during my final, my final year there. So this right. was a school of right. 800 boys and one girl in the sixth form. Imagine how ballsy she must have been to be the only girl in the school of boys. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, I, I mean, you're not still in touch, but I, I bet she has some stories. She was well. French yeah. as yeah. well, which yeah. added to her allure. And so I left, but I left, uh, I, I, was, I left school at the, the very beginning of upper six. I was gone at the age of 17. Um, I quit school, basically. I only ha- I had some O-levels. Is this because your father was uh, bedridden and you didn't have the guidance or you were just more or less left to your own devices? What has happened? Why would you leave school, a grammar school? Was it a fee-paying school? No, it was a, it was a state school, fully, yeah. fully, so fully state-funded. Yeah, so you were on a... Yes, but people at that school would be on a sort of scholarship, would it? Mm, I don't think it was that formal, actually. Yeah. I just think yeah, they, yeah. they just took the kids who passed the 11 plus and, and divvied them out amongst... Well, not a lot of them would leave school at 17. I did. I, 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 I did. Well, Why? that's such a good question. I mean, there was a bit of bullying going on at school. Um, I, home life was, a, you know, pretty challenging, I have to say, with a bedridden father um, and, and a mum who's, you know, Oh, did bit, you take, had you, and, had you taken your A-levels early? No, no, I didn't, I didn't have, I still don't to this day have A-levels here. Ah, right. So you let, so this is, yeah, well, this is definitely a story. That left, something needs to be said here. What, what, why did you do that? Where did you go? Do you what know, happened? Yeah, well, do, you want, do you want to hear this? Yeah. Do you want to yeah. hear what happened to me, yeah. my adventure? I got an interview through an advert in the Daily Mail with the Foreign Office. How astonishing. At the, where my, my, my father... Just in the vacancies. We were a Daily, we were a daily Mail reading family. Right, but but right, oddly, right. The Observer on Sunday, I, I've never been able to understand that. Reconcile. No, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, but this was from the ordinary vacancies in the back of the paper. Correct, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, foreign yeah. office, I, I wrote in, I got called for interview. 17, what have I got to lose, right, to be honest with you? What do I have to lose? I'm probably a but little... foreign office don't take on 17-year-old boys. Come on. I go up to London with, same, with said grandfather... In fact, right, with Fishmonger Grandfather, um, I'm wearing one of my dad's suits. Now, my dad was about four inches shorter than me, so my trousers, rather like Rishi Sunak's, are up oh, around, are up yeah, around yeah, my I can shins. See it. No, I can see it all. Up around my shins. My grandfather bought me 10 Piccadilly cigarettes, which he handed me on the train on the way up there. That was such a moment. That was, it felt like a moment of absolute arrival. 
right? I think was he was that your first smoke? Um, no, no, I think he bought me ten Piccadillys because he figured that I smoked, but yeah, yeah, couldn't. Yeah. So you I weren't. Just, yeah, who could it wasn't them? the scene where you go coughing and no, uh, go, no. and your tears. No, I sat eyes. on the train. Then I sat on the train, had Smoking a cigarette. Was cool as Humphrey Bogart. We both smoked a cigarette. He didn't smoke, and we both smoked a cigarette on mm. the train on the way mm. to London. And I'm 17. I look 12. And uh, right, <laughs> and I get, I go to the foreign office, and I'm interviewed by a panel of three men. Um, as I recall, uh, middle-aged, all of them. And there was there, there generally tends to be that that standard of, of interview panels, good guy, you know, nice guy, nasty guy, right? Or however it is, nice woman, nasty yeah. woman. Um, so I, I, uh, I told a joke and they all laughed. I remember that. And then they asked me what, what experience I had of world affairs, um, which when growing, growing, growing up in Southend-on-Sea, not a lot. Um, however, I had read a paragraph in the Daily Mail about the Austrian general elections in 1983. And I could tell them that a man called Herr Kreisky won the election. And they said, what does he stand that for? That sealed it. That, 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 well, they did. There was a follow. They yeah. said, well, what did, what did Herr Kreisky stand for? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. And I, I, I didn't have the faintest idea. I didn't know what party he was from. I didn't know what his party did. I didn't no. know whether it was a controversial right. election. So I, I had, I simply had to say, I'm, I, I, I don't know what Herr Kreisky did or does or believes, and I think they quite liked that candidness, right? Yeah, clearly, yes, yeah, I yeah, wasn't yeah, going to yeah, bullshit. Yeah. I was seventeen, Hugh. I had nothing to lose. They were watching how you coped with not knowing something because if they've got an employee, right. they need to know where, right. when that employee does know yeah. and doesn't know. They need somebody who can do that. But definitely. it's not someone who's applying to Cambridge and being yeah. up and having that yeah. follow up by a tutor who's going to decide whether they get in or not. It's not that. I'm seventeen. I look twelve. I've got my dad's suit on. I've got a packet nine eight Piccadilly now mm -hmm. in my in my pocket. And I'm sitting in an interview for the Foreign Office. And they must have looked at me and thought, poor kid. I've got a great interview story too, which oh. is um, just uh, I mean, very briefly, because I'd like to get back to the Foreign Office. In would you, would you? But you've just reminded me uh, that I had an answer when I was interviewed for a job that turned out to be one of the most important I've ever had. And I think it lasted 20 years in the end. Um, but it was, it was a labouring job. It was a casual labour. It was for um, uh, just seasonal work at the British Sugar Factory here in York. Right. And uh, so a whole lot of people were sent down from the job centre to the factory to be selected for the campaign, which is um, handling the beet that comes in from all the, uh, all, all the wagons and so on, they're bringing in from around the farmers from the sugar plantations around York, the beet sugar plantations. Yeah. Um, and so it was going to be very rough. Yeah. It was going to be hard. It was going to be a lot of different sorts of tasks. Yeah. It would last till about January from about October to January. There'd be a lot of money made on overtime and so on. So there's some pretty keen lads there and, uh, and big and handy, handy kids too. And so we were all lined up in the office by the personnel officer and he was asking people what they did. So one would come forward and said, well, you know, I've be done a bit of electrical work. I can be a bit handy, you know, and say, okay, fine, that's fine. Um, and what have you done? Well, I've, uh, I've been working with my dad, who's a joiner, and I've been doing quite a bit of joinery things. Right. I've been around joining with my stuff. father's a milkman, you know. And then he stuff. came to me, you know, who's just living on his own in York and uh, doesn't have a dad he wants to talk about, particularly in that uh, context. Um and he says, what can you do? And I said, I can do what I'm told. 
Perfect. He said, start tomorrow. Yeah, I love it. Great answer. A little bit about my first job at the foreign office. So I got this job. I'm 17. I go up there. I, I, uh, I'm about a month away from leaving home forever. So I leave, yeah. I leave home just after my 18th birthday and I move to London. I'm taking the train up for the first two months. The job I'm going to is what's called, I think it was a sort of a, 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 a desk clerk or something like that uh, in cultural relations department um, uh, at the foreign office. I was, I, was, um, I was doing a stack of photocopying. I was making, basically making tea and coffee for everyone, horrible powdered coffee and, and horrible tea for, for absolutely everybody. Um, I was doing this terribly routine job of of recording documents on a on a file and then cross referencing them so that they could so someone wrote a, so an ambassador somewhere wrote a letter in to write I'd have to put that on whichever file it was cultural relations with Swaziland I'd put that on file and then I'd cross reference that so everyone knew where to find that. And what happened when you uh, when you messed up and you made a mistake? Uh, I I did often, and there was the there was the the chief uh, the chief desk clerk um, would upbraid me um, for for putting the wrong letter in the wrong column or describing something incorrectly. Everything I did for the first couple of months had to go through the chief desk clerk, yeah. and uh, I made many mistakes. And I once left all I once left the safes open. I once didn't lock all the keys up. I went mm-hmm. home. I was on late duty, and the person on late duty has to make sure that all the cupboards are locked and that the keys are put in the great big and safe. And what, what's in the safes? Uh, lots and lots of documentation. State secrets. That would see me sent down for a very long time, I think, Hugh, if I were to, if I were to, mind you, it's not really, it's cultural relations. I wouldn't say it's that, uh, it's that not highly classified, particularly. Tons and tons and tons and tons of files and documents and keys. And I left the lot open one night. I just went, you know what I'm like, you know what I'm like here with my keys and my wallet. I'm always go out, I have to come back three times for them. Same I'm thing. the same. I'm the same, the same, aren't I? I leave the front door open. We get yeah. told off by the landlady. Yeah, I know. It's terrible. So I left everything you open. You be so careful. You can be told off so strongly. Yeah. You know, it depends whether people are good at telling you off. And you had somebody at the foreign office yeah. really good at telling off. Right. Is right. that right? I was told off very well. Yeah, I was t- you thoroughly, still remember thoroughly, him. thoroughly told off. You stayed told off in a way. I stayed yeah. told off, right? It was a telling yeah. off with resonance. <laughs> it was a durable telling so off. So it explains a lot about you, you know. Somebody says, Daniel. Right, you know, oh, God, sudden, no. you know, Back at right, the foreign right. office. Oh, dear, dear, Sorry, dear. I'm, someone says Daniel like that, I say, sorry, mm. ambassador, immediately. Yeah, post-traumatic stress disorder. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> or success disorder. At yeah, the, uh, at something the, like that. So that was yeah, me. I was 17, working at the foreign office, in London, just making coffee and tea, photocopying enormous amounts of things, running running letters over to senior people, ministers, whoever they are, big undersecretaries of state. I was just the delivery guy. I once delivered a letter, uh, not a letter, what was called a submission. So it was something that the office would put together that, that, that one of the chief um, civil servants would look at, score, and then that would go on to a minister. Which minister? Well, whichever minister was, it was whoever, whichever minister had responsibility for cultural relations in the foreign office. So who would that be? Can you remember any names from that name? period? Yeah, yeah, uh, to, just to place it in, uh, uh, in history. Let me think. Well, Jeffrey Howe was, yeah. was the first foreign secretary I worked under in 84. Uh, T- Timothy Renton, I think, was his name. He mm. was, he was the, the government minister in charge of, of culture. And, and I, they were receiving things that you were bringing. I was, I was bringing them. I was, more crucially than that, 
I was uh, I was putting them together and 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 sealing them in some way. Mm. And I once used a pin. You never use a pin. I couldn't find a safety clip. Safety clips are also problematic in the Foreign Office because safety clips they 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 get stuck. Other papers get stuck behind yes, them. Yes, they, they do. They do. So you have to be careful yeah. of that, right? So I think I was all out of staples. Uh, a bit bit wary, a bit cherry about the safety clip. Um, I went with a a pin, and the and the and the submission came back with blood on it. You know it. You you know it, Hubenes. A spot of blood yeah. right at the top left hand corner, and a little note from a very senior civil servant. Oh wow! Right. Please advise your clerk that 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 pins are unacceptable. Right. Here with the evidence, and it was signed. Yeah, yeah. They've been risk assessed and found wanting. I was so upbraided by the chief clerk. You were. You, oh. That was your best telling off, was it? That was my best bollocking ever, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, you're lucky you didn't go to sleep for 100 years or something like that, you know. There were times in the Foreign Office when I wouldn't have minded doing that, to be honest. Well, with you. plenty. No, no, I mean the, the ministers themselves who are pricking their fingers. Pricking you know? fingers. Yeah, now, you're into that realm of fairy tales. Now, yeah, aren't you? yeah, yeah. So he pricks his finger and goes to sleep for 100 years and nobody notices. The, how disappointing that yeah, must because be! Because it was Jeffrey Howe. What a lo- <laughs> what a, what, a, what, a, what a little impact you're you're, yeah. you're 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 playing out to the world if you can go to sleep for a hundred years and nobody notices. I know. Well, they said that, that uh, being attacked by Jeffrey Howe is like being savaged by a dead sheep. That's right. They did. I do yeah. remember that. Right. So. But I, we were all, I was we were all terrified of like senior uh, the Secretary of State and senior minister. I mean, his office his office was vast and and wood panelled and. Lots of couches in it, and I mean, this was this was this was the age of excess far more than now, right? The the the, the wallpaper and the the glasses and the the the, the drinks cabinet and the, the beautifully plush couches and chairs and chaise long for Sir Geoffrey to elongate mm. himself over during an afternoon. And of nap. course, Sir Geoffrey would have known the Prime Minister, who would have been Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher, and Margaret Thatcher would have known the Queen. Correct. And are the, you separating us by yeah, degrees? And the, <laughs> yeah, you are, and aren't you? I'm just saying here we have six degrees of separation all the way to the Queen's racehorse, actually. Uh, right, okay. So I am in some way connected to... Yes, somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who knows the Queen who knows her racehorse. I am. Welcome back to the Anarchist's Monastery. I think we'd like to spend a little time on our York News story of the week, Hugh. We thought that that might be an interesting... Um, an interesting item yeah. to always have on our podcast. Right. Story, York Story of the Week. And I'm... I'm the, yes, the, very good. The, the, the inaugural York Story of the Week um, is about a, a skeleton that uh, was, although having been dug up in, in 2007... Um, at the Barbican in York, the Barbican just outside the walls uh, east mm-hmm, of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, the Barbican is an entertainment centre. And um, they found a bunch of skeletons. Uh, they found a bunch of um, skeletons um, basically there beneath the Barbican, people who've died, stand-up comedians who've died on stage, basically. One of the skeletons uh, has, has recently been identified, this week, in fact, has been identified as possibly the remains of Lady Isabel German, who was a 15th century anchorite. Now, maybe you could explain that for us. What do I, what's that, what does that mean? What's an anchorite, Hugh? 
Uh, an anchorite is a uh, is a holy hermit. Holy hermit, Batman. Uh, holy hermit, yes. Um, and uh, it's somebody who uh, will um, be absolutely dedicated to living in one particular cell. I mean, I think this is what I assume from the from the word anchor in anchorite. Right. So you are, and uh, and I know about it myself because uh, I've been looking into the history of All Saints North Street. Ah, uh, yes, indeed. What a yes, fascinating church and that, that is. might just come into this this story of yours, uh, because the first anchoress, um, uh, anchorite at all, you know, of any gender, uh, to uh, to occupy a cell here in York mm. um, was the cell that was built for Emma Rawton in mm. the 15th century mm. um, who had dedica- dedicated herself to God like a nun, but a nun who lived all on her own, a hermit nun. And uh, they built this um, anchorite's cell for her. It was uh, You had to go up some steps. It's there now. You can visit it when you come to York. You can go All Saints North Street. I want to see the anchorite's cell. Go up the stairs and see the extraordinary conditions under which she lived. There's two rooms there. Um, and the main room, the bedroom, is above. Um, but the main room where she did her study and stayed all day long and never came out. Right. Um was furnished with a peephole, was it you know, yeah. so that she could see the host being lifted at the altar I see. by the priest right. at mass. So there's a heavy a religious affiliation to to to, to being, being a, a to nun. Being an yes. Can I just a ask, like, what? Hermit. I just I'm curious about that. So there's a there's a cell, a small cell, and a person is in there um, at, at prayer, perhaps. What what would the day to day existence be? What what would happen in that cell? Can you imagine, Hugh? What are the daily chores? Yes, this is exactly what you think about when you go and visit it. Whip, you, around, you, whip, around, whip around with a duster. I mean, you, you, know, you think once to yourself, morning, you know, what is it like to be in one single room? Right. Uh, I think you have to understand that you are in a completely different state of mind yeah. by the time you have actually dosed yourself with all that sensory deprivation. Indeed. Um, day after day, week yeah. after week, year in, year out. It's kind of a flotation tank, right? It's uh, it sounds uh, it's that similar sort of when experience. When nothing changes from one moment to the next, when yes. it is always the same. Yeah. Yes. Eventually, sensation will fall away. Right. You know, and you won't be able to sense this thing that is ever present. Yeah. Um, but not changing. If there was a change that occurred in it, suddenly, you know, there would be information coming down that line. So you're completely blank. Sort of an ecclesiastical groundhog day. What happens, I think, is that you achieve a state of consciousness through being suspended entirely um, just on your own um, personal brain processes, your own electricity, your own magnetic field. Um, States of meditation can Mm. be obviously accessed just the same way that Mm. they are in yoga, Mm. you know, and the practices in the Far East. So sort of you and everything you are being entombed without dying. Well, that's what people from the outside would think. They would. But you have no idea. If you talk to... If, when you, if we, Anchorites we, ever got together... We haven't found Anchorite, anyone on the inside to talk to about this. I know, this but you. Anchorite conferences, just imagine that they're talking about the extraordinary experiences they've had on this sensory deprivation program. 
But there was social life. Three day conference. Very, very good evidence of it. You can Wikipedia Emma Rawton. Right. Emma um, Rawton. Okay. Emma who's, Rawton. Emma, who's Emma Rawton? She was the, the first anchorite that it was built for originally at the back end of the All Saints. The church was built for her or, or no, the, no, 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 no. Okay. No. The anchorite cell. Indeed. So that she could cell. she could dedicate herself to the anchorite's life. And she was a contemporary of, of Lady Elizabeth German? I don't know. We're going to have to get back to our listeners about okay. this, those that write in with questions. We're okay. going to have to find out um, whether she succeeded Emma Rawton when right. Emma Rawton died. I mean, I'm quite sure that Emma Rawton, from yeah. what I've read about her, didn't give up being an anchorite. I'm sure she died on the job, as it were. Well, uh, we've all died on the job, mm, Hugh. I just wanted to say that people, though did revere these people who lived in under Indeed. these conditions. Indeed. And, and and they could easily be used a bit the same way that soothsayers, you know, yeah. um would be uh would be used by the ordinary public, um, or, you know, uh, just in rural circumstances and so on. Um, the local witch uh living in her cave, you know, there's one at Nesborough. Right. Um Mother Shipton, very famous. Yes. Um, who's uh, who was famous for living in that cave and right. being a seer, and uh, and that can be visited too. That's Shipton to in North Yorkshire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, no, Mother Shipton at Nesborough. At Nesborough. Yeah, at Mother okay. Shipton, which is in cave. North Yorkshire. Apparently. But that's an example of the same sort of dedication to a particular spiritual path, and therefore becoming somebody who's consulted. Right. And uh, and her Emma Rawton's fame spread nationally. You know, people knew about her. Or oh, certainly um, in the north of England. The viral anchorite. And we have an account of the Earl of Warwick, Warwick the Kingmaker. Right. Uh, coming to consult her about uh, problems he was having um, in uh, in producing an heir. In 15th century. He was uh, worried, yes. The fertility uh, of his wife was not was in question. And uh, and he got advice from, um, from Emma Rawton for that. And I believe, too, she was consulted on... Um, the Earl of Warwick's support for Henry the Sixth. Okay, and that okay, is good. quite That's something. That's, That's quite something for That's an anchorite. You know, there history. she is yeah. in this. You're saying she's in this tiny cell. Nothing's yeah. happening to her, and yet, looking at it from that angle, she's actually an active element governing the country. Six degrees of anchorite using her power. separation. Yeah, using the power of the of um, the higher consciousness. Good. So that that's that's nice to know. That's fantastic to know the kind of um, atmosphere that one would position oneself in inside the the the, the cell. Uh, how psychologically punishing, but also how psychologically uplifting it must have been at times. One of the features um, that I've read about about um, uh, Lady Isabel German is that she seemed to have via. I think they've discovered this through sort of forensic anthropology. Um, she seemed to have uh, uh, a couple of illnesses, right? Septic arthritis being one, and venereal syphilis being another. Now, it is supposed that uh, either one of those, perhaps particularly the syphilis, would have left its mark on her on her body, a visible mark on her body. And I think at the time, there was this kind of platonic understanding of what you are within will be expressed on the surface. And so I think it was seen as she was seen perhaps as full of vice. Um, uh, uh, in terms of her her day-to-day existence, which might have been why she chose, she empowered herself to move into a cell yeah, and live yeah. the rest it of her days out. sounds terribly, terribly unfair. So she catches right. it from her husband who's come back from the Crusades or something. Uh, yeah, exactly. And 
and needs from there on to hide herself away for the rest of her life. Right. Yes, I could see I could see somebody of a sensitive nature responding in that way. But I, and I hope she found the reward. I think she has agency at that point though, don't you? In a very male-dominated society, I think you'll find such an action reveals a certain sense of control over one's life, right, which was otherwise for women completely absent. You Heaven either. knows. I mean, they've they've discovered her bones. They obviously know something about her. There may be more to find out. I'd, I'd like to, I, I don't suppose we'll ever find out, but I'd, I'd like to ponder just for a moment what it would mean in terms of one's mental health to deliberately lock oneself into a cell and to have all that and just to be alone. I know that's the point, is to be alone and solitary. Um, but lonely. I think is that is then might come into play. Yeah, can you answer this question then? In your mind, are you thinking of people who are used to living a sociable life and moving freely and having absolute total, you know, uh, charge of where they go and so on? Yeah. Um, who suddenly find themselves shut up in a cell and right. the effect on their minds—that's one thing. Um, and the other is somebody who's actually developed a condition in their social life where they want to more and more withdraw, right. you know, where withdrawal is appropriate. Right. I mean, there's over, obviously over the centuries, there have been people of all the conditions that we meet today in the modern day yeah. um, that people actually uh, have as their, their overriding mental um, yeah. uh, climate within, within their minds. And some of this can be... Um, schizophrenic just as much as anybody else um, right. in, in modern days. And so right. it could be that somebody who was um, of, that, of that particular nature um, took themselves off to mm. a cell in order mm. to explore more deeply yeah. the visions and the, right. um, the closure the communion that yeah. they have, that they feel they have with the divine. And so they are already disposed to it. So it's no problem to them. They want that. They want it. They want the, the walls put up. They want the roof. And the other thing we didn't mention about the anchorites is they are walled into their residence. They're immured. Definitely. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, one of the, that's one of the ceremonies is the walling up. So that might satisfy somebody who is suffering from a condition that we would call schizophrenic. Right, for example. Might really want that. And they might live a life where they hold all their feelings, their mental condition made absolute perfect sense, not just to them but to everybody around. Yeah. Whereas trying to keep schizophrenic people um, out in society now, you know, they need an awful lot of treatment to somehow bring them to a normality. So that they can, uh, so they can exchange right. in a normal way. Right. So you th you people. think that there may have been schizophrenia may have been involved, perhaps then, uh, in one of the uh, the uh, the anchorites, for example. I think in communing with the divine is a symptom, a classic symptom of schizophrenia. Right. You know, um, when you talk to God, that's prayer. When God talks to you, that's insanity. You know, it's an old. Is that formula. insight design right there? No, it's not. It's an old one. <laughs> it's not insight design. That's been going ever since insanity was Just, going. I think. But I, I'm 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 still interested in the idea of this 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 mental illness as as mm. un mm. you know undefined and and patently undiagnosed unless one's thinking of some sort of herbal remedy perhaps that might have been pushed through the door. They but, would have a name for it. They would have a name for the sickness. Yeah, you know. it's almost impossible to imagine an age. Then, because now everything is so 
well defined, diagnosed and defined and and medicated. And I, I know this from personal experience. Um, it must have been just so curious to live in an age where none of this was possible. One, one, one could only describe to oneself, presumably one's feelings. And how that must have played out in terms of mental health, right? And how perhaps damaging that might have been. We, we live in an age where we're very damaged uh, in our mental health because so many things are just th- launched at us at a thousand miles an hour. Have you it? ever come across a work called The Cult of Western, Western Witchcraft? It's not easy to say, is it? The Cult of Western, Western Witchcraft. Could you imagine yes. walking into a bookshop and, and trying trying to get that right and having mm. five goes at it? And that would tell you that people who actually were suffering from the conditions that they would receive treatment or medication for today, um, in the past, may well have been thought of as witches yeah, because, very... of their, because of their um, internal, internally dictated imaginations Precisely. and so on, and, uh, and been burnt. Yeah, and I mean, you know, there were a lot of people who uh, were just um, were just attacked or accused of witchcraft yeah. for social reasons yeah. because um, neighbours had fallen out, wanted to get rid of somebody down the road, sort of thing, or they were just old people. But also, there will have been people who suffered from schizophrenia just... who would have been burnt for it. No, of course. And I'm thinking of someone who's walled up as as as, as well. And so imagine imagine being walled up and suffering from depression and anxiety, right? Uh, right, everything that's everything that's got depression is about everything that's gone. Anxiety is about things to come, which are most unlikely to come. That's the nature of anxiety. Imagine suffering those and being in a cell. It must be so psychologically well, people, psychologically mm, illuminating. People have been kidnapped ways. and put in those conditions. People who are totally sociable, and then they've had to cope with it. Correct. But you forget these anchorites have chosen. Yeah and gone, chosen this life, and they've gone through a long process right. of initiation right. into it. Right. That, but that doesn't mean their choices are going to keep them from, from, from suffering, for example, right? It, doesn't, it, it enables suffering in many ways. Mm, but it's different, different when you are just being imprisoned against yeah. your will, yeah. and, your, and, uh, and your choice is, uh, is yep. definitely against right. that. Um, if you've actually chosen this life, maybe, of course, you, uh, you weaken um, we're in talk- your resolve, and that's when you think the devil is uh, talking to you, you know. Because we're you. talking years and years and years here, decades, in a cell, right, before one dies. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully one dies as gracefully as is possible and as productively as is possible given the what is to come. I'm just fascinated by that crossover then between, I suppose, alone and lonely. And I raise that, I think, because I've, I've often been very lonely in my life. And perhaps I'm, I'm discovering a kind of a, a psychic connection here, perhaps that's over, overstating it, but perhaps I'm locating some sort of psychic connection between, between someone who, who, who deliberately put, makes themselves live alone in, in extremely straitened circumstances, and someone who who doesn't choose to be lonely, but in, but is is um is it just finds himself in 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 such a situation and more than once, right, repeatedly, and I suppose what I'm trying to say is that the the consequences of that, uh, whether you're in a cell uh, in a 15th century church in York, or whether 
suddenly life of traveling all over the world catches up and bonds don't aren't, don't appear to be as strong as as perhaps they once were and then finding a kind of drift amongst friends and uh, and and losing friends not for something i did perhaps but for something that maybe i didn't do and the consequences of that have been for me to have, to have been at times in my life very lonely and that's very punishing because it's very difficult to see an end to that when you're in it. Yes, I'm not, I'm not being funny when I say this, but you are not alone in this, obviously. I'm not alone in this loneliness. You're not. And you can study the effect of the culture and the developing technologies uh, and the way they impact on us for the amount of sociability they encourage, uh, community life they encourage, or the very opposite for the separation, the alienation, Absolutely. and the loneliness. And it may be that we're going through a phase now um, while uh, the churches are emptying, uh, the uh, cinemas are struggling to get people in, um, people are drinking at home or in very small, much smaller circles, that in actual fact the sort of culture that's developing in the world at the moment is creating smaller and smaller units of yeah. people. We are actually getting separated because there's so much ease in contacting one another through um, radio and, and broadcast and everything else, electronic means. That's separating us because it's getting in the way of personal contact, replacing it. And think what we've been through with COVID as well. And that, and, yes. and, and that, that sheer welter it. of mm. disconnection. Mm. That sheer welter. Sent people looking for ele electronic ways of having company. Which in some ways makes it worse. Electronic socialising yeah. can be one of the loneliest things because what you're not getting is personal contact. No, you're not. That's right. Losing the skills. Course, losing yeah. the skills of personal contact, yeah. which is all about reading people's faces while they're talking of to you as is. well, as much as anything else. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so this podcast is, a, is an example, a prime example of um, a direction in which society is trending now. Right. That is an answer to an attempt to answer the loneliness that our technology is spreading amongst us. Wouldn't it be lovely to think of, 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 of uh, one of our conversations, even just in the background, like people who put on Radio 4 all day and listen to that, right? Wouldn't it be like, what a lovely thought? Because we, we do prize conversation we, and we, we, uh, we prize uh, both logical and illogical conversation. Um, but I think you're like me. I think you are. I know you are, in fact. And you just, you know, you'd like to just restate or bring back into being or bring back into fashion the idea of then considered discourse amongst the two of us, right? And just being very at ease with that, I think, Huber. I think that's what we do quite well. Well, we have to produce conversation that um, is company, that people can feel they are joining in with, and it's a, it's a very good thing to invite people to communicate with us and complain and, and encourage and so on and ask questions, it, because this is one of the ways in which we can actually replace that um, slowly deteriorating sense of community mm. um, that now we are transferring over to other media. Right in order to be together, in right. order to um, 
increase our sociability or to gain from sociability the sorts of things you usually get, which is new experiences you hear from each other, which is probably why we're talking about the things that we've encountered. Of course, yeah. Typical examples of what the contents of any conversation. Yeah. To be that conversation. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And um, um, we don't all... The, the thing about the anarchist monastery, I think, is uh, is that there's a certain uh, order and a certain chaos to it. That's what it means to me in some ways, right? So that we can have... We can think chaotically, but we have to bring a certain order to those thoughts in order to broadcast them, right? What That's you how you think of it. I yeah, think of okay. it very definitely as something that is long as a piece of string and doesn't know where it's going, which is the essence of ordinary conversation. Yeah, it is. Topics come up, um, distract you from the thing you were originally Left turn, discussing. Right turn. Off you start discussing that. That reminds you of the person you're talking to, your interlocutor. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, so you set up, you set up very yeah. straight when you said interlocutor. Yeah, yeah, oh, it's very Latin word with lots of um, beautiful syllables in it. Mm. Your interlocutor, you can't say it fast. You have to say it. It's slow. so true. Isn't but it? your interlocutor, interlocutor. Yeah. All right, <laughs> you win. <laughs> He's very competitive. <laughs> um, to bring up those subjects, uh, that your in, intol, interlocutor, intoculator. 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 Is that one of C33PO's? That place? is definitely what I was trying to say, your intoculator. The intoculator. <laughs> is that still spelt the same way as interlocutor? But in, intoculator is just brilliant to me. It's like. Yep. That's, that's the new technology. It so trips off the yeah, tongue. Yeah, working with your intoculators. Right, going through or, an intoculation yeah, yeah, yeah. session. And when your intoculator comes up with something, right. obviously all you, you all rush off that way. Yeah. <clears throat> all conversation. Right. Because the intoculator... Excuse me. Because the, mm, yeah. a cough. Because the intoculator is effectively the word of God, right? I think following... No, no, the point is that your intoculator, uh, like you, poor soul, is terribly mortal. And he's just here for a very short time. Yes. But... You're not suggesting that you're not here for a short time in saying that, are you, Hugh? What's that about? It sounds like we're different and you're going to be here forever. Oh, did I imply that? Which in the hearts of millions you will be, Hubert. It feels like that sometimes, Mm. obviously. Yeah, yeah, Mm. yeah. But um, what's the word of God in it, to me, is that it's wrong to draw to pull somebody back mm. from a subject that they ha- they want to raise because what you're talking about together has um, summoned it up, right? By association, and it's wrong to so you don't so in the end when you're having a real conversation you've no idea where you're going to end up. Correct. You could both write down on a piece of uh, paper and stick it in an envelope the subject you wanted to end on. Right. You know. Right. And you'll never get anywhere near there. You'll have been. All around the world before you get back. You could to save an envelope to. and just turn it face down, couldn't you? You could, right? Yeah, I like the sound of that. Envelope. How do you pronounce envelope? You just did it. Intoculator. I'm going to write that down. It's a good word. I want to see how you spell I'm it. I'm the intoculator. The intoculator. The intoculator. Okay. In the and talk to you later. Yeah. Talk to you later. How about and that? And talk to you later. Lovely, to, lovely to be here with you again, folks. Yeah. Coming to you from the anarchist monastery in York. I'm Daniel. And I'm Hugh. And we'll see you next time. Take care. Bye.